G'day, I'm Rowan Mackey, and I'm joined by my dad, clinical psychologist Chris Mackey, and this is Psych Spiels and Silver Linings. G'day, Dad. How are you going today? Good, thanks, Rowan. Good to be with you again. Good to be with you as always, and good to be with you for today's podcast, which I must admit I've been looking forward to all week. I don't know if you're a little bit like me, Dad, but I've been absolutely glued to the TV with everything that's going on in the news and everything over the last week, and we thought we'd do a topic today that's a little bit topical, which we've called the nastiness of narcissism. So, Dad, do you want to just give us a bit of a brief rundown? What are we going to be talking about today? Yes, and I wonder if people think we might have a particular individual in mind amongst other things. And look, to some extent, I suppose we do because there's something playing out on the world stage at the moment that relates to narcissism. But narcissism is a term about personality characteristics where we become over-identified with our ideal, where the person believes that they are their ideal self. So sometimes we talk about an ideal self, which could be a good thing. You know, what would be ourselves at our best? What would our values be? What kind of things would we do? Well, that can be a wonderful thing to consider and to aspire to. But if someone thinks they are that ideal self, they are pretty special, then a lot of problems can follow on from that that we'll be describing. And it's an interesting one as well because as we were discussing this, it's the sort of thing where you don't necessarily want to be too black and white in the sense of there's elements of narcissism which we even celebrate at times. Like I think of sports people and particularly in American sport, for example, there's an element to which the American champions have an element of narcissism about him in terms of going, I'm going to put my imprint on the game and it's completely up to me and no one else is going to have any say about it. Michael Jordan is almost a classic one. It became a bit of a meme when his documentary came out last year in terms of him taking everything personally. In terms of, you know, he looked at me wrong, so I took it personally and had to put 30 points on him sort of thing. So we almost have a bit of a negative connotation with the term narcissism now, but is it the sort of thing that it's always negative? It's a good point because, no, some level of narcissism, in other words, some level of self-belief or some level of drive for achievement... Well, that's helpful, and to some extent, that's, well, thinking, I'm going to back my judgment. I think that my judgment might be as good or even a bit better than some other people's in relation to this. I'm prepared to back myself in this situation, or I'm going to put a high priority on my needs and interests in pursuing a particular goal that can be very motivating for any kind of achievement. So if we didn't have any level of what we might relate to as a dimension of narcissism, then we would have maybe no self-belief, no way of asserting ourselves, we'd be forever deferring to other people, that side of things. But the problem often is the other side, where people have got their ego so much into things and ignoring other people's interests that it comes across as being arrogant or mean or exploitative. And that's where we get into talking about toxic narcissism or often it's referred to as malignant narcissism and we'll be talking later on about narcissistic personality disorder which is the term used in psychiatry or mental health circles when people are showing those aspects of very harmful narcissistic traits. And so how do we know when narcissism goes too far? Because as we were saying, like you need a little bit of it to be able to back yourself, particularly if you're taking on a challenge where you feel like you're extending yourself. You may not necessarily have someone completely leading the way in front of you. So how do we know when it does go too far? 
Well, it's partly when people get their ego into things so much that people have a bent towards grandiosity. And so it comes across as a heightened grandiosity or arrogance. And one of the key things then, it's an imbalance in weighing up one's own interests compared to considering the interests of other people. And that can come across as treating other people as objects, being quite manipulative or exploitative. It can also come across as being extremely sensitive to failure or humiliation, so not being able to accept any kind of evidence of failure, if you like, and and blaming other people. But it's particularly to do with being exploitative towards other people and treating them as objects is one way of putting it. And I sometimes describe a particular way of gauging narcissism. It's partly about the level of damage or mess that people leave behind them if they leave a situation. Like people might leave a work situation, they've created such havoc in that circumstance. Colloquially, I often think of it as leaving a turd behind them. I suppose maybe in line with our podcast today, I'd say leave a great deal of nastiness behind them when they leave a situation, real problems. And I think that we're partly seeing that in America at the moment with... President Trump finding it very difficult to accept the outcome of an election and some of the ways he's responding to that and some of the ways that he's handled the role, that's an example to me of leaving behind quite something of a mess related to narcissistic tendencies is one example. Well, I think it's interesting to look at where the term narcissism comes from because, Dad, as you know, I'm someone who's pretty interested in Greek mythology and I really like the way that they anthropomorphize some of these different concepts. So the story of Narcissus, where narcissism comes from, is an interesting one. I enjoyed reading it during the week because there's a couple of different words that we use in English which I believe came from this story. But so the story goes that one day Echo, this creature Echo, was walking along in the forest and Echo was an unfortunate character in the sense that Echo had played a bit of a prank on one of the gods previously and the god had cursed her because Echo was someone who loved to chat to people, loved to have a conversation, all this sort of stuff. And so the god Juno, I believe, put a curse on her to allow her to keep speaking to people but only in the way that she was able to repeat the last thing that they said. So Echo's walking along in the forest and sees this absolutely beautiful young fella. She's absolutely in love with him. Love at first sight. It completely absorbs her whole being sort of thing. And so she thinks, oh, I've got to follow him. And so, of course, this fella just walking along, minding his own business, Narcissus is his name, senses someone behind him, senses someone following him and calls out, who's there? Of course, it's Echo. She can't speak to him. So all she can do is call back, who's there? Narcissus calls out, where are you? What's going on here? Where are you? And so she calls back, where are you? So Narcissus calls back, well, let's go to each other. So she calls back, let's go to each other. And she's absolutely stoked. She's thinking, oh, the love of my life has acknowledged me. Let's jump into each other's arms. And so runs towards him, super keen to meet him. Of course, Narcissus sees Echo and rejects her. And she basically can't take this as just distraught at the idea of being rejected by a new love and eventually sort of fades away and dies to the point where all we're left with is her voice. This is where we get the term echo from. And so this action by Narcissus gets the attention of the god of revenge, Nemesis, the god of revenge, of course, where we get the term Nemesis from now. And so Nemesis sees what's happened to poor Echo and thinks, oh, that's just rough. We need to get Narcissus back for a bit of this. And so he draws Narcissus towards a lake. 
And when he goes towards the lake, Narcissus sees his own reflection and doesn't recognize it to be his own reflection. He sees his younger self, thinks it's someone else and falls madly in love with his younger self, with the reflection of his younger self, just as Echo fell in love with him in the same way. And so he becomes completely infatuated by his own reflection to the point where he simply can't think about anything else. He can't sleep, he can't eat, he can't go on and eventually dies by the riverside. There's a couple of different versions of the story, but essentially the notion is he's so self-absorbed with the ideal image of himself that he's presented with that it costs him his life. He's not able to do anything about it. So Obviously, it's going to be a slightly hyperbolized version of, of narcissism in many ways, but I think when we look at the story, it does give us that real sense of, well, what are we losing by being so attracted to our sense of ideal self? What, whether it be someone else's attraction, whether it be the ability to progress forward, whether it be the ability to nourish ourselves, whatever it is, but it does say that there is something that's lost if we can't get past that ideal of ourselves. Yeah, I suppose we'd say from a psychological point of view that someone is so focused on their own self-image and looking for that specialness or glory in their self-image that they can't form a healthy attachment with someone else. So it leads the person to be quite separate or cut off at times from other people. So when people have strong narcissistic tendencies, they can often be lonely. And so... What's the difference between, for example, narcissism and perfectionism? Because perfectionism is another term that I've heard before, which I'm assuming incorporates that idea of the perfect self just through the term. So are there any similarities between narcissism and perfectionism? Well, I suppose with perfectionism, it still relates to one's ideal self, but it's where the person is looking at the ideal self in terms of standards having very high standards, but not just high standards and ideals, but the person over-identifies with their standards. They think that they should meet those standards rather than aiming for them or thinking it's good to have ideals to strive for, thinking you should achieve them. So any kind of falling short from that can lead to quite a lot of distress. So we sometimes might call that a problem of unfulfilled shoulds. I should be able to handle this, I should be able to live up to that standard, but that will often lead people to feel a dread of failure or a helplessness if they feel that they're not managing to reach those standards. So it's still like a striving to do something worthwhile and the perfectionistic standards can also include treating other people in certain ways. It can be considering other people as well, but it's, again, this over-identification with an ideal. Whereas with narcissism, it's the person, they think they are the ideal. And so they might also be concerned about failure, but more in terms of how that might impact on their reflected glory or how they look to other people. It can be that hypersensitivity to criticism or any kind of negative feedback or any evidence of of failure, but more because they feel that would be humiliating. So in either case, people could tend to experience a degree of shame from not reaching standards in some ways, but there's a sense of humiliation with narcissism, whereas with perfectionism, it's more the sense of failure. I heard a great quote from someone during the week and it shocked me who it came from. But to me, it's more about perfectionism, I think. But I think it's a good way to look at maybe discerning the difference between perfectionism and narcissism in this way. But this person said, I have offended God and mankind because my work didn't reach the quality it should have. 
think like that is profoundly negative. Who was that person that did nothing? It was Leonardo da Vinci. So you just think like how good would it have been to be in that guy's head for five minutes and see some of the stuff that he was able to well, it gives a hint, doesn't it, of some of the ideals that he was striving to reach and no doubt that partly motivated him to achieve the most remarkable successes and, and achievements. But no doubt there'd be a bit of a cost to that attitude as well. It actually reminds me to help get around that kind of expectation that one should actually be able to perform at that ideal level or be such an ideal The Navajo Americans had a particular tradition when they were making rugs. They would always leave a knot in each remarkably beautiful rug that they made. They'd always leave a knot to show that they were not trying to vie with the gods. They weren't pretending that they could function at the level of the gods. So they deliberately built in this mistake to each of the rugs that they made. Oh, I like that sentiment and... I suppose it introduces the whole other aspect of whether or not there is such thing as an ideal, which is a whole other can of worms in itself. But the other thing I like about that Da Vinci quote, and we might come back to this a little bit later when talking about some of the strategies for narcissism, but it has that notion as well of serving others. It's using your ideal self to serve others. So we'll come back to that a little bit later on when talking about some strategies. But Dad, just to get a bit of an overview How does narcissism develop? How do these narcissistic tendencies develop? Well, there are a couple of main influences that we would recognise, but in each case it comes from recognising that narcissism has a compensatory quality. This aspect of the person thinking that they're so wonderful is partly to compensate for deeper feelings that maybe that they're not so fantastic or feelings of some kind of you know, weakness or limitation or negative attributes. And it also involves disconnection from others in some way. So one way it might develop is if the person has experienced some kind of emotional deprivation or abuse or their needs not being met generally early in life. So maybe at a deeper level that the person feels not so worthy or lovable or enough in some way. And so the person might compensate for this if they have some particular skill or ability through intellect or a particular skill can compensate for that by feeling very special and achieving this sense of having very positive attributes or being wonderful through using that skill or their intelligence or their will to have uncommon success. So often people do have some kind of skill or capacity which is above average where the person has had significant successes or early successes that can add to that sense of specialness and then they use that to compensate for this feeling deep down that maybe they don't match up so much. And the other thing that can contribute is if the person is treated somewhat as special by being a real favourite of parents or not having many limits set on them, being given messages about how special they are, maybe also modelling by the parents of having, whether it be a sense of entitlement or treating other people in more dismissive ways that leads the person to more feel that they don't have to think of other people so much or curb any antisocial impulses, so to speak, in relation to other people. So it can relate to a kind of deprivation, perhaps, or otherwise this sense of specialness and not being pulled up at all, 
being allowed or even subtly encouraged to break rules because you have this different elevated special status. It's interesting there you mentioned talking about when people are young and, and maybe lacking something in their childhood. I heard a interview recently with Mary Trump, who I believe is the cousin of Donald. And basically she said that when Donald was about two years old, his mother got quite sick and so was essentially in hospital for about a year. And so for that period of time, essentially Donald didn't have a mum. He didn't have a, anyone to look after him in that sort of maternal nurturing sense. And gee, a, a few things seem to fall into place when, when you hear that sort of thing. I think Ted Gazinski, the Unibomber, he was another one who I believe had a period of about two weeks in childhood where he was left in isolation and his parents said he was never the same afterwards. So it's interesting that there does seem to be that pattern with some of these more prominent narcissists that we come across. Yes, and if there has been that disruption to attachment, which is where if children are raised in a secure and safe environment, a nurturing environment, they generally can count on their needs being met, or at least others attempting to meet their needs. We talk about good enough parenting. When the child is upset or troubled or hungry or whatever, then they have their needs attended to or they're nurtured in a way that leads them to feel that they're okay. Their needs and interests are worthy of consideration. They count to others and they can also count on others. They can look to draw on others' support. So they develop this connection with other people and it builds in a sense of give and take. It builds in a, a sense of greater security in the world. It doesn't mean you have to be wonderful in yourself to be fed or to get most of what you need. Just simply being yourself is enough. Whereas if people have missed out at that level of nurturing, being able to count on others that way, then they might feel, oh, I've got to do something special or be special in some way to justify positive feelings or love or admiration coming my way. Well, it's an interesting thing then you saying that because one thing that I wondered when we're having a bit of a talk about this during the week is, is narcissism motivated by insecurity or infallibility? In terms of, you look at Trump and from what we've sort of described here, I'm, I'm sure he'd have elements of insecurity about him. He's such a caricature of a human being that he'd almost have to. But at the same time, he does have this infallible quality to him in terms of, well, I can get away with everything, so I am just going to be able to do everything that I can. I think of, for example, Macbeth is almost the archetypal narcissist. Well, Macbeth had that notion of the divine right of kings in terms of if he was to be king, it was an appointment from God, so he could do whatever he wanted. So is it always insecurity that is the underlying factor to then even potentially lead to that infallibility? Yes, we'd think it goes more that way. It starts off with an underlying insecurity, a disconnection from others in the sense of not feeling you can count on others so much not being enough in oneself or others maybe not being enough for you in a certain way. And so where the infallibility comes in is the person compensates for the sense of insecurity by the flip side. So the notion is the person's always got some usually more unconscious feelings of insecurity that are so overwhelming if the person felt them, they would feel so helpless or they'd have such dread about experiencing these feelings of insecurity more directly that they have to block them out or suppress or deny them partly by using this illusion of infallibility. So there's a lack of acceptance 
of mistakes. There's a lack of acceptance of failures. And so this infallible idea might even come across with examples like a person who's clearly lost an election by 5 million votes and all the rest of it, saying, I've actually won the election, I haven't lost. That's an example of not being able to accept any even hard evidence for not measuring up to this wonderful ideal the person's created in their image. Well, let's have a bit of a chat about Trump then, because, Dad, we're not a political podcast in any way. You and I don't even necessarily agree on everything politically, so we're not going to talk about his policies or any of that sort of stuff. But I think I saw an article with Andrew Bolt basically sort of saying that, you know, Trump would have won the election if he wasn't Trump, was the notion of it. So even his supporters are coming out and questioning whether he's a good representative of his perspective. So, of course... It's impossible to diagnose someone without kind of spending any time with them. You know, you don't have a a working relationship with Trump. I'm obviously not a psychologist, so we're not looking to necessarily diagnose Trump. But I think it is a stark example of what can happen when someone does get enabled to that point. So, Dad, maybe if we just start, I think it's interesting, even looking at the DSM-5 criteria, so just the basic criteria for a mental health diagnosis What does the DSM-5 say about narcissism? Okay, so this is where we're looking at the more extreme forms of what we would call toxic narcissism or malignant narcissism might be the more everyday expression. But in the mental health field, we would say that when it reaches a much more problematic level, we might refer to a narcissistic personality disorder. And like other personality disorders or patterns of behaviour that are enduring and problematic, then there are a number of objective criteria or relatively objective criteria that we look to compare with, at least some specific criteria to consider. So when people have strong narcissistic tendencies to the point of it being a personality disorder, we would say that they have at least five of these following characteristics. One is a grandiose sense of self-importance. Being preoccupied with fantasies of unlimited success or power or other positive attributes. Believing you are special. Requiring excessive admiration. Having a sense of entitlement. So being able to be beyond the rules, you know, parking in a disabled space, for example, if you don't have the appropriate right to do so. Being interpersonally exploitative. That can sometimes even mean might do favours for other people, but even then it's looking for something in return. Lacking empathy, a real difficulty of putting oneself in other people's shoes. Focusing on your own reactions to a situation rather than thinking about how other people around might also have been affected. Often being envious of others or believing that others are envious of you. So there's this competitive kind of way of looking at situations. And then being arrogant and haughty. So just by convention, we would say that someone fits a pattern of having a narcissistic personality disorder if they have at least five of those traits. Now, of course, this is partly a construction, just like anything else in DSM or anything else when we look at mental health labels and certainly personality characteristics, but it gives a little bit of specificity around the kind of things that we're describing. And it's got these core features of specialness or grandiosity and lack of empathy. It was funny hearing you talk through that list there and I'm thinking, tick, 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 tick. But 
Anyway, I, th- I think that's one reason why we use Trump as such a stark and contemporary example. And um, <laughs> unfortunately, a number of people will have come across those patterns strongly in other areas of their life with, with a boss or a partner or an ex-partner or someone else they have a close association with. And so one of the things is it does tend to lead to significant distress for people if their lives are closely aligned with someone with strong narcissistic tendencies. What strikes me about narcissism from what we've been saying today is if something's so based on this ideal perspective that we may have for ourselves, well, if you're a leader who, for example, is narcissistic, you're asking other people to buy in to that perspective. So the issue with that is that when something happens, when something bad happens, it's almost as if they don't have a complete frame of reference to go on with. It's almost like they've relied so much on the perspective of the narcissist, of the ideal perspective of the narcissist, that it's almost that they've started a journey that they're not necessarily contributing to, if that makes sense as much. Yes, well, one of the features of narcissism is that if people offer a different opinion or they say something that seems critical or they seem to take exception to someone's shortcomings in some ways, then that's when someone who's caught up in narcissism will feel that as a kind of humiliation and feel very resentful about it, feel very angry about it. And so this means it doesn't leave room for other people to offer independent opinions. And that's a problem. If someone's in a leadership role, then it means that people can't play the devil's advocate or suggest that there might be something else that hasn't been taken into account so well or bring up problems with a certain course of action. And that's where there's much greater risk of poor decisions as well as it disenfranchising other people from their rightful roles. And Dad, as we're having a chat about this during the week, one person that you mentioned to me was Karen Horney, who I believe was a psychologist in the 1950s who had some ideas about narcissism. And we've gone through the DSM-5 definition of narcissism in terms of some of those objective measures. But what did Karen Horney have to say about narcissism? Because I think she had quite an eloquent way of putting some of these things. Yeah, look, I'm just going to list some of these things because I thought it was so striking and written in 1950, these statements came from and I thought, yeah, they do put it in such an eloquent way. One is the notion of the person being driven by a need for narcissistic self-aggrandisement or the need to end up on top. Having to eliminate any trace of self-doubt from awareness. A person speaking incessantly of their achievements being very sensitive to the possibility of failing, maybe even feeling proud of the ability to fool other people, but being most fearful of being fooled oneself. That would be a profound humiliation. A person might give the impression that they love other people, but there's this feeling that they must impress other people. They can be generous and flattering and do favours for other people, but it's always in anticipation of something being returned from others, even if it's their admiration. The person will tend to endow their family and friends with work and plans and give them glowing attributes. They'll overlook flaws and turn them into virtues. Or actually, Karen Horney said their capacity to overlook flaws and turn them into virtues is unlimited. Feeling that their needs and tasks are so important that they're entitled to every privilege... 
They don't question their own rights and expect other people to love them uncritically, no matter how much they cross the line. Having plans that are too expansive, overrating one's capabilities. And to some extent, this self-belief can lead people to be very resilient, that can help them bounce, so to speak. It also can help people have a very high level of energy and, and seem eternally youthful, as she put it. However, where the problem really comes in, if there's some kind of obvious failure or repeated failure, as she said, repeated failures or rejections can crush. So what that means is the person's so invested in things seeming like they're working, they have to deny signs of failure. So that's where at the moment, in the example that we've talked about with Trump, it's even come across as denying having lost an election suggesting that he's got COVID beaten with vaccines coming very soon, almost immediately, when now we're up to 200,000 people a day being diagnosed with COVID in America, deflecting responsibility and blaming China for those problems rather than accepting responsibility for what's not working currently, elevating people to certain kind of positions and then sacking them, often denigrating them at the time of doing so, And another thing that Karen Horney emphasised is a tendency to a kind of arrogant vindictiveness and a need for vindictive triumph where the person could be extremely competitive, go into violent rages, contemptuous disregard for others, being convinced that other people are malevolent and crooked, getting into name-calling. Now, I'm just struck by that kind of language that Karen Horney used in 1950. It seems like a textbook example of what we're experiencing now and I think some of the relevance of this is there's a wealth of understanding in the mental health field and an understanding of personality patterns and this coming from a psychoanalytic tradition and I think it points to some of the wisdom from the past that's relevant to considering in the present. Well then what obligation do you think we have to call out leaders in that way because from some of the things that I'm reading through this list here for example some of the things could be good in a way for a leader in terms of having the I suppose one-eyed commitment to an agenda in a way or or a one-eyed commitment to getting certain things done so to what degree do you think we should really call this sort of stuff out as being pretty much black and white negative and again I think that comes back to a matter of degree so when we look at narcissistic tendencies it's the number of tendencies that people have or their intensity or the manifest harm that they cause, the negative consequences from it. And I think one of the things that this does suggest, though, is the preparedness of others to call out some of this behaviour if it does seem to get to an extreme, because otherwise it does tend to lead to those negative consequences. And I think that that's one of the difficulties that we've seen over recent years. The problem is not just in an individual's personality, clearly, but there's a question of how many people around for example, in this example, Trump, were prepared to call him out to a degree and also the extent to which a number of areas in the media were complicit and would make excuses for that or find it funny in some way or in other ways not just seeming to accept but almost endorsing that kind of behaviour. And so I think that when certain behaviour crosses lines to extremes, there is a relevance on others around calling it out. And I suppose that's something that's happening with the Me Too movement. That's followed on from a sense of entitlement that people have had, whether it be for sexual gratification or other kind of interests acting in an exploitative way. And the whole Me Too movement is partly saying, 
we should call out exploitative behaviour because of the harm that it causes. And so then I wonder, does that translate to everyday life in a sense? Because it can be the sort of thing where we don't necessarily want to create conflict with someone, even if we sense someone's been a little bit narcissistic, even if someone's been a bit of a dickhead, we don't always want to call them out about it sort of thing. So what are some ways that you would suggest that we manage with someone who we sense has a few narcissistic tendencies? Okay, so it comes back to the notion of, again, a balance of interests, oneself and others. There are times that we might see it and feel that a person is crossing the line. Now, the advantage of calling out that kind of behaviour, well, first of all, it lets someone know about it, but it also shows that the person is going to get some kind of resistance to acting in that way. So in a general sense, it relates to the ways that we deal with conflict, which is a theme of a previous podcast. And we can be passive or not look after our own needs or interests, perhaps observing others. We can be aggressive where we pursue our own interests but ignore other people's to an extent or downplay their interests. Or we can be assertive, in which case we might look to express our own interests or act in our own interests but also pay attention to others as well and look for some balance that way. But there are some behaviours that can be clearly so exploitative or provocative or harmful that it's worth calling that out, or even better, a number of people calling that out, because then it makes it more difficult for people to act in an exploitative or manipulative way. And so then what leads people to seek help, for example? If we think about, for example, in a psychology practice setting, from what we've described, there could almost be an element of people maybe even not necessarily knowing that they have narcissism. Maybe they aren't even fully aware of some of these insecurities that they've been hiding from themselves. So where do you come across it most in a practice setting? Well, there are a couple of different main patterns with people seeking help with narcissistic tendencies. And one is when they're prompted to seek help by others. Like they might have got into some kind of difficulty. They might have faced an ultimatum from a family member. Perhaps a relationship's about to end unless they address certain kind of behaviours. They might have got in trouble for some kind of rule-breaking behaviour. And so they're pressured to seek help by someone else. It might relate to an addiction or alcohol problems or having got in trouble with the police because of rule-breaking or seeing themselves a little bit above the law and now they've been caught out in a certain kind of way or they've acted in a manner which is like a shameful transgression and they've either been directed by others or as a result of that they've sought some help themselves. So getting in some kind of difficulty with others or also it can present following depression. More often say depression after a relationship breakup. Maybe someone's left them influenced by their frustration with the person's narcissistic behaviours or the person might have got into difficulty at work. They might have lost a job or had ongoing significant conflict partly because of the way they're interacting with other people, or there might have been a crisis situation, or the person might have faced some significant loss financially or status-wise that has led them to be depressed and they're seeking help for the depression. So it tends to be some kind of rule-breaking situation or getting in trouble with other people, so to speak, or depression after loss influenced sometimes by their narcissistic behaviour. And so then what can you look to actually address? Because from some of the things that we've spoken about, for example, if something's happened in early childhood, 
that can be quite a deeply ingrained element of someone's personality. So is it the kind of thing where you basically look to address the narcissism as a whole or is it more that you look to address how that manifests in certain ways? Well, there's a bit of both and we look at the broader kind of picture. If the person is prepared to follow through with therapy and that's a challenge because there's something about therapy that can be quite uncomfortable. It involves a reflection on your own behaviour, including ways that you've fallen short of an ideal and some judicious challenging, often from a therapist. Actually, I will mention that as a therapist, when you see people with narcissistic tendencies, and I've seen quite a number of people in the past, there's a balance between two different things. It's important to offer some kind of affirmation to the person or some kind of encouragement to see the positive qualities in the person because there's enough that's challenging about therapy in itself that it's hard for people to stay in the situation without some of that, without some experience of being affirmed. But also there needs to be a degree of challenge. If a person's going through therapy with narcissistic tendencies and they're not being at times directly challenged by the therapist, hopefully handled in a thoughtful or sensitive way but sometimes it might involve some significant confrontation unless the person's being challenged in some way they're not likely to address these underlying patterns but there are some broad patterns that we look to work on and there's some more specific things the first thing is we'll acknowledge the problem that the person's come with and it might be depression or an addiction or some other kind of behavioural difficulty. It might be ways of dealing with anger. And so that will be some of the primary focus. But if we identify some of these narcissistic patterns that might contribute to or fuel those problems, then we might look to draw that out as well or acknowledge some of those patterns as being contributing factors. So then the broad things we're looking at is it's helping the person allow themselves to be ordinary, not have to be special in different kind of ways. So it's challenging that notion of grandiosity. It's addressing the lack of empathy. So helping the person put themselves more into other people's shoes, considering more others' reactions to things and acting accordingly. And then it's also helping people deal with their hypersensitivity to evaluation, including criticism or concerns about failure or how that might look to others. So, yeah, that grandiosity, the hypersensitivity to evaluation or criticism, addressing the lack of empathy, and this might unfold over a period of time. Often change is gradual. If these are more deep-seated, long-lasting patterns, which they often are, And so a number of people would follow through with therapy to address those areas over a period of at least a couple of years and not uncommonly longer. And what are some of the practical ways of managing that? Yeah, that's a really important thing in the whole CBT, the cognitive behavioural therapy field, looking at some of the specific behaviours that people can change. One of the things is to pick up on exploitative or abusive behaviour. That can include identifying difficulties with anger. Like So anger management can be part of a therapy. It also can be dealing with substance abuse or other ways that people are transgressing in some way. Or it might be discussion of some conflict situations that have come up, for example, in their work life and how they've responded to them and some feedback and reflecting on that, including their ways of dealing with conflict. 
It also involves looking at mood regulation. For example, if people have used substances, looking at other ways of managing, for example, low feelings or panicky kind of feelings. Also managing, say, social anxiety or concerns of criticism or evaluation. So strategies for social anxiety are relevant. Sometimes it's picking up on people's all or nothing thinking that they have to appear a certain way, like ideal, or otherwise it's humiliating. So looking to help people view, for example, success and failure as a more relative or blended way, allowing for mistakes or allowing oneself to be vulnerable is partly a helpful thing in many situations. But part of it is also helping people accept a degree of honest feedback And that comes up in the therapy setting itself. So it might be titrating that feedback. Initially, it might be more gentle challenges, so to speak. And then as the relationship is developed further, that often gives the therapist more scope to be more direct at times in some of the feedback. But a lot of it also is helping the person recognise that everybody's unique in some way. No one's so special that they meet some kind of ideal. Everyone has feet of clay, so to speak. And so looking to recognise other people's qualities as well and any ways that promote collaborative or cooperative behavior that that will help as well and i wonder as well if the character strengths are relevant which we've spoken a bit about on the podcast before too in terms of i remember getting my own list of character strengths and of course you look up the top but one of the things that i remember thinking was how stark it was to think the ones down the bottom was oh yeah that that probably checks out a bit too so is it the sort of thing where character strengths do you think can help people with narcissism I really like that aspect of a positive psychology. Yes, I think it can help. That whole notion of identifying one's signature character strengths, it's got a number of implications to it. One is we're all going to have highly developed strengths in certain kind of ways, and these are things that are closer to our ideal self, so to speak. But like you're suggesting, we're all going to have things that are lower on our list. And for example... In positive psychology, we look at things in terms of positive attributes. So rather than looking at the person reducing their narcissism, so to speak, which has got that pejorative kind of tone to it, what we can look at is the person helping bolster their humility. So if the person goes through their character strengths and they've got narcissistic tendencies, one of the nice things is to have the positive things about the person affirmed that maybe helps with some of the underlying even unconscious insecurity to have one's most positive traits and objectively positive traits so to speak highlighted further but it also helps to acknowledge some of the less developed qualities or some of the less developed attributes and we've all got less developed attributes as well and so can look to address that and if one of those lower attributes is humility or forgiveness or some of those more empathic kind of traits, then the person can focus to some extent on working on that more, bolstering that. I also like the fact that character strengths identifies that other people have their character strengths as well. And this is the idea when we look to be collaborative, when we look to be cooperative, consider the character strengths of other people around you, family members, colleagues, others that you're working with, friends, if we recognise other people's character strengths and develop our own humility and forgiveness, for example, they're very helpful, practical ways of countering narcissistic tendencies. 
I think one thing that's really stood out for me today, Dad, is thinking about all of this in the context of social media. Because obviously we've spoken a little bit about some of the more prominent news stories to feature narcissism recently, but social media is something that almost everyone has a little bit to do with these days. Many people may have got this podcast off Facebook or YouTube or somewhere. So it's something that we hear a little bit about these days in terms of things like the age of entitlement and buzzwords like that. But do you think narcissism's on the increase at all? Look, in some ways, actually, I think yes. And it's a tricky thing because some of this is good and I think some of it is not so good. The good aspect of it is those aspects of narcissism that relate to self-belief or backing yourself or striving towards individual goals, this relates to what Carl Jung referred to as individuation. And Carl Jung said that our challenge through life is to find the strengths in us and develop them. He talked about like an acorn theory of personality and like all of us have an acorn in us to grow into a huge oak tree. Well, these little acorns, they might be pretty modest, but a huge oak tree, that's a grand kind of example. That's almost like relating ourselves to an ideal. But what Jung was saying in, say, the mid-50s and the 19, early 1960s is that the world had so many problems with pollution or wars or poverty or inequity that he thought that what we needed is for everybody to individuate, everybody to find the best in themselves to help create a better world. But he wasn't talking about being selfish he's talking about developing our own individual attributes and then hopefully applying them collaboratively with others. So I think that's a positive thing. I think many young people within them have a sense that there need to be new solutions or more solutions in the future and in some ways are looking to individuate to find the best in themselves. And I think that's something which is good about, for example, now there are thousands of different career paths that people can have. There are ways that people can pick and choose something that suits them more exactly, and I think that's a very good thing. But I think there's also a downside to it as well, and I think, as you say, with social media, there could be a lot of emphasis on how people look or how they portray themselves, their face to the world, what Carl Jung referred to as the persona rather than the self. The persona is how we look to others. And so, so much of Facebook, for example, is about the persona and even exaggerating or highlighting that when what, say, Jung would have been on about is more deeply developing ourselves. But I think a main thing to take into account is another key theme from positive psychology, and this is the notion of other people matter. That came from a leader, Chris Peterson. He always emphasised the mantra of positive psychology is other people matter. What a wonderful anti-narcissistic kind of notion if we can develop our individual character strengths recognize them and develop them which is a whole theme of this podcast and where it started but we can do that in a collaborative way recognizing other people's character strengths and others having the opportunity to develop theirs and looking at applying them in the context of other people matter i think that's an example of how positive psychology can help bring out the best in ourselves whilst not overly getting our ego into it in relation to other people, not being grandiose, looking at ways we connect well with other people. Well, Dad, that might be a nice place to leave it there for today because I suppose if there's one sentiment that 
I'm left with looking at America and looking at the news and, and what's going on in a lot of places in the world at the moment. I think we could all do with a little bit more of that sentiment in terms of other people matter. I think we're seeing a little bit of division all around the world when potentially if we get a bit more of that sort of thinking, it'll be easier for us to find some solutions to some of the big challenges that we're facing. Yes, and look, I suppose I'm reflecting on what we've talked about today and it's maybe a bit of an easy focus to highlight Donald Trump. But the main issue, I suppose, is for all of us to reflect on our own ways of looking to find a balance of our own interests and others. And so hopefully this podcast is an invitation to reflect on that. Thanks again for chatting with me today, Dad. As always, we'll pop up all the resources up on the podcast page at chrismackey.com.au slash podcast. If you haven't already, give us a subscribe on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. But thanks, Dad. I look forward to the next one. Me too, Rowan.